Hello, and welcome to Ents and Sensibility, the podcast for Jane Austen lovers who love bold, witty, leading women and awkward, handsome men and dragons. In this podcast, we discuss Jane Austen's novels, her life and influence on British literature, feminism, entertainment, and modern lit, and as much nerddom as we can get away with. I'm your host, Casey Meserve. Together, we'll read Austen's published works and discuss the major themes running through each of them. We'll also take time to talk about Austen criticism, her earliest fans, and her place as an author in the 21st century. We'll talk about Jane's home life, her family and friends, love interests, the British Navy, 18th to 19th century novels, and how all of these things influenced her writing. With luck, sarcasm, and many cups of tea, we'll cover all of Austen's major novels, juvenilia, and unfinished works, and all of the zany adaptions of her work that we can find. This podcast has many influences. First, Drunk Austen is the wonderful blog and online community by Robin and Bianca, who knew it is a truth universally acknowledged that a single woman must be in want of a drink and tacos. These two ladies recently went their separate ways, so this podcast is, in part, to thank them for their dedication, effort, and wonderful work they did for Austin fans for all those years. Second, this podcast would not exist without the Prancing Pony podcast by Alan Sisto and Sean Marchese. Their passion for J.R.R. Tolkien and The Lord of the Rings inspired me to begin my own podcast on another of my favorite authors, Jane Austen. I want to thank Alan and Sean for the love and hard work they put into their podcast. They inspired me to name this podcast Ents and Sensibility. It's a play on Austin's first published novel, Sense and Sensibility, and Tolkien's gigantic tree shepherds, the Ents. If you have ever ardently loved a tree, then you'll understand. And if you haven't, then you should consider it because trees are delightful. Now let me introduce myself. My name is Casey. I grew up in Massachusetts in the United States and I live in Rhode Island now. I have a master's degree in English and I've worked as a reporter, a news editor, and many other things. I'm a lifelong book nerd with a passion for British lit and fantasy. I love sci-fi, gothic horror, coming of age novels, classic lit. I'm obsessed with Star Trek The Next Generation, Lord of the Rings, and of course, Jane Austen. I wasn't fortunate enough to read Austin in college courses, so I'm hoping that this podcast will help fill that gap. My first experience with Austin was watching the 1940 Laurence Olivier Greer Garson version of Pride and Prejudice late one night in bed during my freshman year in college. I immediately bought the book and was really surprised to find that they had changed things, such as Lady Catherine wasn't actually testing Lizzie when she charged into Longbourn and demanded that Lizzie tell her she wasn't planning to marry Darcy. Well, I immediately bought Sense and Sensibility, Mansfield Park, Emma, and Northanger Abbey. It wasn't until years later that I finally saw the 1995 BBC version of Pride and Prejudice and discovered Colin Firth. Since I'm an ex-reporter, I thought that a news segment would be a nice addition to this podcast. In Austin News Today, I'm recording this in December, and I would be remiss if I didn't first wish Miss Austin a happy 245th birthday. 
Jane was born December 16, 1775 at Steventon Rectory in Steventon, a village in Hampshire, England. She was the second daughter and seventh child to George Austin, a clergyman, and his wife Cassandra. In a letter about her, Jane's birth, her father wrote that her mother, quote, certainly expected to have been brought to bed a month ago, and that Jane's arrival was particularly welcome as, quote, a future companion to her sister. Jane and her sister, also named Cassandra, became almost inseparable companions throughout Jane's life, and we'll discuss their relationship throughout this podcast. But right now, let's raise a glass and wish Miss Austin a very happy birthday. Also in news, Alan Rickman's diaries are being published. Rickman played Colonel Brandon in the movie version of Sense and Sensibility. According to The Guardian, 27 handwritten volumes of his witty, gossipy, and utterly candid thoughts about his career and life spanning more than 25 years are set to be edited down into a single book. Publisher Canongate will publish the diaries of Alan Rickman in autumn 2022. Rickman began writing the diaries by hand in the early 90s with the intention that they would one day be published. He wrote right up until his death in 2016 from pancreatic cancer at the age of 69. Now, I have to be honest. I was about halfway through the movie Sense and Sensibility before I realized that Colonel Brandon was played by Severus Snape. And it took me years to realize that the same actor played the Sheriff of Nottingham in the delightfully bad Robin Hood Prince of Thieves and Hans Gruber in the second best Christmas movie ever made, Die Hard. I found an interview of Rickman talking about playing Colonel Brandon on YouTube, and I've linked it in the show notes. That's all for Austin News today. Since this is the first episode, we'll start at the beginning with Austin's first published novel, Sense and Sensibility. It might not be the very beginning of Austin's writing career, but it's still a very good place to start. Sense and Sensibility was published in 1811 by Thomas Edgerton of the Military Library. This publishing house usually published books on maritime military history, but agreed to publish Austin's book when her brother Henry brought it to them. Austin paid 460 pounds to have the novel published herself. Fortunately, Sense and Sensibility was a huge success and sold out its first printing, earning Jane 140 pounds. This would be about 11,000 pounds in 2020, or almost $15,000. The novel was a hit, and Austin published two more books with Edgerton, Pride and Prejudice, and Mansfield Park. Now that Sense and Sensibility has a proper introduction, very important in Georgian and Regency England, let's get into today's reading. Sense and Sensibility, Chapter 1. The family of Dashwood had long been settled in Sussex. Their estate was large, their residence at Norland Park in the center of their property, where for many generations they had lived in so respectable a manner as to engage the general good opinion of their surrounding acquaintances. The late owner of this estate was a single man who lived to a very advanced age, and who for many years of his life had a constant companion and housekeeper in his sister. But her death, which happened ten years before his own, produced a great alteration in his home, for to supply her loss, he invited and received into his house the family of his nephew, Mr. Henry Dashwood, the legal inheritor of the Norland estate, and the person to whom he intended to bequeath it. In the society of his nephew and niece and their children, the old gentleman's days were comfortably spent. 
His attachment to them all increased the constant attention of Mr. and Mrs. Henry Dashwood to his wishes, which proceeded not merely from interest, but from goodness of heart, gave him every degree of solid comfort which his age could receive, and the cheerfulness of the children added a relish to his existence. By a former marriage, Mr. Henry Dashwood had one son, by his present lady three daughters. The son, a steady, respectable young man, was amply provided for by the fortune of his mother, which had been large, and half of which devolved on him on his coming of age. By his own marriage likewise, which happened soon after, he added to his wealth. To him, therefore, the succession to the Norland estate was not so really important as to his sister's. For their fortune, independent of what might else arise to them from their father's inheriting that property, could be but small. Their mother had nothing, and their father only seven thousand pounds in his disposal, for the remaining moiety of his first wife's fortune was also secured to his child, and he had only a life interest in it. The old gentleman died, his will was read, and like most every other will, gave as much disappointment as pleasure. He was neither so unjust nor so ungrateful as to leave his estate from his nephew, but he left it to him on such terms as destroyed half the value of the bequest. Mr. Dashwood had wished for it more for the sake of his wife and daughters than for himself or his son, but to his son and his son's son, a child of four years old, it was secured in such a way as to leave himself no power of providing for those who were most dear to him and who most needed a provision by any charge on the estate or by any sale of its valuable woods. The whole was tied up for the benefit of this child, who, in occasional visits with his father and mother at Norland, had so far gained on the affections of his uncle by such attractions as are by no means unusual in children of two or three years old, an imperfect articulation, an earnest desire of having his own way, many cunning tricks, and a great deal of noise, as to outweigh all the value of all the attentions which, for years, he had received from his niece and her daughters. He met not to be unkind, however, and as a mark of his affection for the three girls, he left them a thousand pounds apiece. Now let's talk about that introduction. We've already have several characters, one death, and a lengthy timeline. There's old Mr. Dashwood. He's elderly. He's never been married. He's rich. He's lonely. There's young Mr. and Mrs. Henry Dashwood, the old man's nephew and his wife. They're three daughters who aren't named yet. There's also one son, John, from Henry's first marriage, the son's wife, and their son. So old Mr. Dashwood invites Henry and the family to live on his estate in Norland Park after his sister dies. They live together for several years and have a happy life. Old Mr. Dashwood dies and instead of ensuring his estate descends to Henry and his family naturally, he entails it to Henry's grandson, which means Henry only has the use of the property during his lifetime and when he dies, he can't distribute it the way he'd like to. He wants it to go to his wife and daughters, or at least a piece of it to go to his wife and daughters, but he is not able to do that. Instead, it goes directly to Henry's grandson. But the old man does give each of the girls a thousand pounds apiece, which is about 50 pounds a year at that time, or about 7,500 pounds or $8,000 today. Now, that's nice, but it's not enough to live on. Instead, Norlin goes to Henry Dashwood's grandson, but this four-year-old kid doesn't need the estate. He's got all these properties and estates already entailed to him, 
John Dashwood's mother's money, his own mother's money. This kid's all set. But old man Dashwood decides to give his properties to a child he only met a few times rather than the family that loves him. Misogyny much? In the next paragraph, the narrator tells us that Henry is a happy-go-lucky guy and he doesn't let this setback bother him. Quote, Mr. Dashwood's disappointment was at first severe, but his temper was cheerful and sanguine and he might reasonably hope to live many years and by living economically lay by a considerable sum for the produce of an estate already large and capable of almost immediate improvement. So Henry thinks that he still has many years left and he can save for his daughters in the meantime. He could sell some of the property. He can improve it and earn money off it that way. He can sell timber from New Orleans woods. So he has all these plans to work the estate so he can leave something for his second family to live off when he dies. But Jane don't play like that. For the fortune which had been so tardy in coming was his only one twelve-month. He survived his uncle no longer, and ten thousand pounds, including the late legacies, was all that remained for his widow and daughters. So less than a year after old man Dashwood dies, Henry also dies. Now, before he kicks off, Henry calls for John from his deathbed and forces him to promise to take care of his sisters and his stepmother. The narrator says of John Dashwood, he was affected by a recommendation of such a nature at such a time, and he promised to do everything in his power to make them comfortable. Now remember that, because that's going to be important later on. So this was enough to satisfy his father, and Henry dies. Norland descends to John and his son. Henry's widow and daughters get 10,000 pounds to live on, and that's it. Now John has a promise to keep. But the narrator gives us a warning, quote, He was not an ill-disposed young man, unless to be rather cold-hearted and rather selfish to be ill-disposed. But he was, in general, well-respected, for he conducted himself with propriety in the discharge of his ordinary duties. Had he married a more amiable woman, he might have been made still more respectable than he was. He might even have been made more amiable himself, for he was very young when he married and very fond of his wife. So this is one of those passages where Austin tells us one thing and then immediately says the opposite. John is kind of a dick, but nobody is going to call him on it because he's so proper and well-respected. So now he promises to help his family, but Henry left out the part about how to help them. So John has to figure that one out himself. He decides he can give his sisters another thousand pounds each. This isn't a thousand pounds a year. This is just one lump sum. Quote, it's 3,000 pounds from his own fortune, the half of his mother's fortune he had, and the new 4,000 a year he has from Norland. He could spare so considerable a sum with very little inconvenience. So this is, would be about 40 to 50 pounds a year for each of his sisters who will live on the interest of this and the thousand pounds that old man Dashwood had left them. Then the narrator admits that John Dashwood's pretty terrible, but he might have been an okay dude if he had married a nice woman. But Mrs. John is just awful. Quote, Mrs. John Dashwood was a strong caricature of himself, more narrow-minded and selfish. Now Fanny, aka Mrs. John, shows up at Norland as soon as Henry is buried. No call, no letter, just shows up with her son and her staff and moves right in. Quote, no one could dispute her right to come, 
The house was her husband's from the moment of his father's decease, but the indelicacy of her conduct was so much the greater, and to a woman of Mrs. Dashwood's situation with only common feelings must have been highly unpleasing. But in her mind, there was a sense of honor so keen, a generosity so romantic, that any offense of this kind, by whomsoever given or received, was to her a source of immovable disgust. Mrs. John Dashwood had never been a favorite with any of her husband's family, but she had no opportunity till the present of showing them with how little attention to the comfort of other people she could act when occasion required it. It's like, hey, you can stop looking sad now. I'm here. And oh, and please move your stuff out of the master bedroom. But Fanny probably didn't even notice that they were sad. She's just a terrible, terrible person. She is basically a character of very wealthy English woman in the late 18th, early 19th century. So Mrs. Henry Dashwood despises her daughter-in-law. She never liked her, but now she's disgusted by Fanny's actions. Fanny hasn't come to visit, she's come to stay. She's the lady of the house now that Henry is dead and wants everyone to know. Mrs. Henry would have left Norland immediately if her oldest daughter, Eleanor, hadn't talked her out of it. And she decides to stay because she doesn't want a family split with her stepson. She still has hope that John will take care of her daughters. Finally, at the end of chapter one, we meet the daughters. There's Eleanor, the oldest, at 19. And she acts like the little mother. She's cool, she's composed, she's totally unlike the rest of her family. But the narrator also says that Eleanor wasn't an ice queen. Quote, she had an excellent heart, her disposition was affectionate, and her feelings were strong, but she knew how to govern them. So Eleanor keeps her emotions to herself. She's not passionate or reckless. She thinks before she acts. She's the only person who can get her mother to try to act politely. And she was affected by her father's death, but she could still move and act. She could still talk to John. She could politely welcome Fanny and treat her properly as the new lady of the house. She's the sensible one. Marianne is the complete opposite. Quote, she's sensible and clever, but eager in everything. Her sorrows, her joys could have no moderation. Marianne is passionate. She makes sure everyone knows her opinions and her feelings about everything. She refuses to even try to rein herself in. And her mother loves this about Marianne and they feed off of each other. Quote, the agony of grief, which overpowered them at first, was voluntarily renewed, was sought for, was created again and again. They gave themselves up wholly to their sorrow, seeking increase of wretchedness in every reflection that could afford it, and resolved against ever admitting consolation in future. They don't just mourn Henry's death and try to move on. They wallow in their sorrow. They seek to increase it wherever they can. So maybe they secretly enjoy Fanny's arrival because it gives them another chance to feel wretched? Maybe? But Eleanor just wishes they would both chill out. Then there's Margaret, a good-humored, well-disposed girl. But Marianne has already gotten to her. Quote, she had already imbibed a good deal of Marianne's romance without having much of her sense. The narrator doesn't have much hope for her. So we have the oldest, Eleanor, 19, the sensible one, the middle child, Marianne, 16, the romantic one, and the kid sister, Margaret, 13. We've come to the end of chapter one, and now I'd like to talk a little bit about the style of this novel. Critics have viewed Sense and Sensibility as a satirical response to the sentimental novels that were popular in the second half of the 18th century, and which Austen would have read as a girl and a young woman. 
This genre celebrated sentimentalism and sensibility, two concepts that relied on the emotional response of both their characters and readers. They featured scenes of tenderness and distress arranged to advance both emotions and actions in the novel. Characters in sentimental novels were not only deeply moved by sympathy for their fellow man, but also reacted emotionally to the beauty inherent in natural settings and works of art and music. The ability to display feelings was believed to show character and experience and to shape social life and relations, according to the Cambridge Companion to Fiction and the Romantic Period. One famous sentimental novel is Pamela, or Virtue Rewarded, by Samuel Richardson, published in 1740. Pamela tells the story of a 15-year-old servant named Pamela Andrews, who is employed by the wealthy landowner, Mr. B. After Pamela's mother dies, Mr. B makes unwanted and super creepy advances towards her. Pamela resists his advantage, but eventually falls in love with him and marries him. The story is told through a series of letters and journal entries addressed to Pamela's parents. Now, this novel is important because it's one of the first novels written by a man to address women's interior lives, their emotions and thoughts and opinions, rather than just seeing a woman at surface level. So Pamela, through her tumultuous emotions and her ability to feel delicate sensations, was a sort of prototype for the sentimental novel and for Austen's novels as well. The most basic companions with this genre are in the title. Eleanor represents sense. She holds in her emotions, acts correctly at all times, and does not allow her emotions to affect her actions. And Marianne represents sensibility. She's sentimental and emotional. She loves nature and beautiful vistas. She loves art and poetry and music, and she refuses to contain herself. But as you read, you can see how Marianne's love of nature and poetry and music could be written in this sentimental genre. So early critics compare the sentimental Marianne, whose sensations make her miserable, and Eleanor, who is more sensible and controls her responses to the actions of others. Another genre that Sense and Sensibility subverts is the conduct book, which was a sort of manual written as a story that codified social and domestic behaviors among men and women and their servants. Going back to Pamela for a moment, what's funny is Richardson wanted Pamela to be thought of as a conduct book. And when most readers at the time were more interested in the lascivious part of the book, he wrote a response that he wanted to educate readers as well as amuse them. The response is called A Collection of the Moral and Instructive Sentiments, Maxims, Cautions, and Reflections Contained in the Histories of Pamela, Clarissa, and Sir Charles Granderson. So this book is basically a list of annotations to the books listed in the title. I added a link to it in the show notes so you can read what Richardson says about women. It's hilariously sexist from a modern point of view. In one section titled Advantages of Men Over Women, Owing to Women Themselves, he says, quote, The love of praise and to be flattered and admired, which predominates in the sex from 16 to 60, give men great advantages over them. Yeah, okay, buddy. Some of the early critics of Sense and Sensibility viewed Austen's novel as a conduct book, showing how Marianne and Willoughby are punished for rebelling against the social order of the time, while Eleanor and Edward are eventually rewarded. An unsigned review from the May 1812 British critic further emphasizes the novel's function as a type of conduct book. In the author's opinion, 
Austin favoring of Eleanor's temperament over Marianne's provides the lesson. The review claims that the object of the work is to represent the effects on the conduct of life of discreet, quiet, good sense on the one hand and an over-refined and excessive suspectability on the other. The review states that Sense and Sensibility contains many sober and salutary maxims for the conduct of life within a very pleasing and entertaining narrative. We'll talk more about both of these genres and how Austin satirizes them in the future. Next episode, we'll read chapter two and we'll get to know the worst sister-in-law ever. We'll talk about the role that money had in women's lives at the turn of the 19th century. We'll also delve more into Jane Austen's life and relationships. Thank you so much for listening to the Ends and Sensibility podcast. This episode was written and produced by me, Casey Meserve. You can join the conversation on our Facebook page, Ents Insensibility. That's E-N-T-S Insensibility. You can also write to us at EntsAndSensibility at gmail.com. Check out our website, EntsAndSensibility.com, for episode notes, list of books mentioned on the podcast, and more. Thank you so much, and I hope you'll visit again soon.